My name is Peter Murray. I'm publisher of Blueprint Magazine, and I'm your chairman for this evening. And it's my job to introduce David Chipperfield to you. Uh, my credentials for being your chairman this evening, I think, are two. Uh, first is that when I was uh, at the RABA Journal, I organized an exhibition called Ten Young Architects, and I'm glad to see that one of those architects was David Chipperfield. That was in uh, 1983. And then more recently uh, at Blueprint, uh, we actually share a building with David and with the 9H Gallery, which building design called the other day the epicenter of style in London. But I guess we're here also to give our sympathies to David as well. I think to be uh, selected by the Sunday Times as a person most likely to is to be damned and cast into oblivion. But nevertheless, I'm sure that David will overcome this uh, problem. Not only because he's quite young, as young architects go. Most young architects seem to be over 40. He's, uh, I think, what, 34 next birthday, is it, David? But also, he is a new breed of modernist to whom modernism is a style rather than a dogma. It's a, a real architecture of elegance, proportion, space, volume, light, and materials built on strong cultural foundations, yet optimistic and forward-looking. This evening, he says he's going to talk about an architecture that reflects an interest in tectonic clarity. And I looked up to see what tectonic actually meant. It means relating to building. David Chipperfield has, in the short period he's been in practice, slid easily into the international architecture network, a, a complex organization that I think needs a lecture from Peter Cook to explain it. But he started well, David Chipperfield, this is, he started well by working for Douglas Stephen a practice which has bred many bright young architects. He had before that trained at Kingston at the AA. From Douglas Stephen, he went on to work for Rogers, then Foster, and in practice has worked with Isosaki and with SOM and commutes uh, almost weekly, it seems, between Tokyo and London and uh, drops in at Harvard en route to give a few lectures. And I think that it's only a matter of time before he gets the sort of class commission that allows him to move out of the basically interior-oriented field that he inhabits at the moment. And I think that this week, one of the things we're all wondering is whether, in fact, that job will be in King's Cross. David, over to you. Um, I brought a lot of slides, but before I talk to the slides, I'd like to try and explain, to try and make some sense of what we do, to explain why we do it, and to explain, more importantly, how we work. Perhaps the most significant aspect of, of our work over the last three years has been uh, in the diversity of the, of the type of work and the nature of that work. And although now we have moved out of interior work, as, as Peter refers to it, and we, we do have three buildings about to start on site, very small buildings, I have to say, um, we've got there by doing a very large number of small 
um, interior jobs. Having had to cut our teeth on these small-scale jobs, and I think in some ways the scale, uh, although the scale is important, the speed at which we have to do those jobs, and also um, the intimacy with the client uh, is probably more important than the scale, in that the um, relationship with the client, the understanding of the program, as I'll hopefully I'll try and explain, um, is fairly fundamental to working at small scale. Architects in my generation are probably the first to have had to learn their craft this way. Especially in this country, there's no clear way for architects to get architectural commissions. Unlike America or Japan, the commission to build a small private house does not exist as an architectural stepping stone. And unlike France, Germany, Spain, other European countries, there is no competition system. That system in those, those countries offers young architects often their best opportunity to build, as well as being a public forum to show ideas that have the chance to be built. Finally, I have to say that this institution has offered very little practical help or encouragement to young small practices, with the notable exception of the 40 Under 40 uh, exhibition, which I understand is going to be held again next year. Um, the route that we have taken, like many of my contemporaries, has been uh, the small private interior. This has, for us, led to other commercial interiors, shops, offices, restaurants, galleries, and finally to our first small architectural commissions. This diversity has conditioned a sort of architectural pragmatism. Um, the dilemma of this is that pragmatism suggests that one works without an intellectual basis. However, for us, this pragmatism is allied to a general disillusionment with the heroic promises of the modern movement. Peter referred to it as a modern movement without uh, uh, ambition, I think. But the failure of architects, especially in this country, and there's obviously notable exceptions, to produce new buildings of quiet beauty uh, has made us withdraw. It's made us withdraw to a position of attempting to control, attempting control over those things that we can be in control of, i.e. material, space, light, etc. It's very fashionable at the moment to say that one is into materials, how things go together, etc., etc. This implies a sort of morality, some truthful position that architects are always looking for. Our work is often cited as, as being about these concerns, i.e. materials and like. And it is true that we, we do consider at the very primary uh, stage of design and composition what everything is made of. However, consideration of materials is not enough to base an architecture on, and we do get slightly fed up with being uh, told that we're very good at detailing or whatever, which I don't, I don't personally believe in. The interpretation of the program, the planning and volumetric considerations of any, of any design are where we always start. Form is more important than material, but material can give ideas for form and can consolidate ideas of space. Plaster, stone, wood, metal, plastic are the materials with which architects work. It is our palette. They're not an end to themselves, but the medium with which we work. We believe that architects should make themselves more conversant with their medium. This craft is not taught at school and not learnt at the drawing board. There are no good books on how to detail, nor should there be. What is important is the relationship between idea and form. As a small office with limited opportunities to build, we have tried to use the projects given to us to experiment and become conversant with the potential and limitations of materials. Our route has been through interior work, and obviously interior work usually starts with the domestic interior. This is uh, an, 
In fact, my apartment that we did a few years ago probably was the um, starting of our, of our practice. The thing that I find quite enjoyable about private commissions, although this was an exception uh, in that I was the client, um, is normally the interpretation about how the client would like to, to live. And it would seem to me that in a domestic program, the placement of the kitchen and what sort of kitchen uh, the interior has, i.e. how, how the, the house is planned around the kitchen, which I think is fairly central, sets the pace for everything else. Certain clients like to have kitchens closed off. Certain clients like to, to have them more open. Certain clients live in their kitchen. Certain clients uh, don't. This is the studio. In fact, this is the, uh, where we started our practice. This apartment was, is in a 19th century Bayswater stucco-fronted house, and I bought two floors. The basement was always derelict, had never been lived in, and was derelict. And we put the kitchen on the ground floor with the living spaces and put the bedrooms downstairs. As it was a basement and very dark, I decided not, not to pretend anything else, to go with what we had, in that it seemed a, a very extraordinary opportunity in London to be uh, actually putting stone onto, onto a solid floor. Um, in this case, it wasn't stone, it was concrete blocks. I tried to, not to pretend the basement was anything else but a basement. The left-hand side shows the character of the, the basement floor, where the bedrooms are. The right-hand side shows the, the kitchen, which is on the living floor, and it's, is an open kitchen. That job has led to other, many other kitchens. This is one of them for a friend and client. We've tended to use them as uh, opportunities to look at materials. The materials we used here were uh, the table is chestnut, the floor is slate, the other wooden floor is oak. Each time uh, there's a subframe under the, the main table, uh, under the cooking table, which is in steel. We try to use them as opportunities to, to experiment. Also to uh, invoke a way that that apartment might be lived in. And this arrangement of, of table and kitchen obviously suggests a fairly convivial organization of the living space. This was another kitchen, a major commission for us. In this case, we were using sycamore, a metal frame, and slate top. This was a house which was um, already converted by the client. The other rooms were quite uh, chintzy, should I say. I'm not sure she's here, but she is. Um, and it was not appropriate to make a very um, modern kitchen. So we tried to use natural wood, natural materials, and a sort of arts and crafts aesthetic, I suppose. So the, the house wasn't just a sort of, the, the kitchen wasn't a shock to the rest of the house. The other thing that we found is that whatever you make things look like, if uh, you use good materials, people sort of enjoy it. However critical people are of what you've, you've done, they will still enjoy the quality of slate, the quality of wood. And that's something which we found very reassuring. It would be wrong to suggest that I learned everything by doing kitchens. I did have an architectural training some time ago, and occasionally... I have to try and use it. And started off, obviously, doing competitions. This was a competition for, I don't know whether people remember it, but probably many people also did it, 
uh, for the Botanical uh, Museum in Kew. This was at a time when I was still working at Foster's and was fascinated by the idea that technology uh, certainly is something to be used, but it doesn't necessarily have to always look so different to what, we, what we're familiar with. Um, and perhaps that's where I'm slightly critical of those offices that I have worked for, Rogers and Foster, that there's always seems to be a necessity to signpost the fact that technology is being used. Uh, in this case, um, because of the context of Q, uh, I wanted to... Apparently I've got some machine here I can point with. The characteristic of uh, the building, the other buildings in Kew Gardens are that uh, certainly the roofs are very important. And of the buildings that are solid, they tend to be built out of stone with then a very lightweight roof. Uh, and the idea of this building was that was to use the roof. Uh, the building had to be very highly serviced in terms of uh, humidity and air conditioning. Was to use sort of everything above this line uh, as, as servicing, um, as control for the way that light came in, diffusing uh, direct light, bouncing it off of the diffuser here, um, containing all the air ducts which are here, finding methods of air conditioning this space, and then finding methods of condition, air conditioning this space down here via uh, a system of um, U-channels. Those U-channels would then gave a uh, sort of composition to the facade, which you can also see here. Um, it was a fairly... The, the program didn't require very much elevation of treatment, so those sorts of uh, devices became useful. Uh, this was an early private commission which followed immediately after that competition and uh, took some of its ideas from it. Unfortunately, it was never built. It was a conversion of a barn. Very little of the barn existed, and the project extended the, the walls of the barn both by adding pieces on, like this piece here, which is actually the toilet, at the ground, the toilet bathroom at ground floor and balcony at the first floor, and by putting a new roof on. This is a sort of cut through the building. Like uh, the Kew Museum, this, was, uh, this roof was done as a sort of ferro-cement shell. Those sorts of projects have carried on, and, and more recently, uh, this was a commission we had in Boston, just south of Boston, USA, for a small private museum. The, the client has a collection that's at the moment stored in warehouses. Uh, he has a a colonial house on the waterfront and wanted to build a sort of depository for his, um, for his art. And uh, the building contained at, at basement level a sort of um, a store system. This was actually a sort of carousel at um, ground floor sort of exhibition space in the first floor. We developed this scheme quite a long way along, um, but it seems to have gone the way of a lot of things. These, this was a slightly later scheme. I won't go into too much. Again, it was trying to pick up on a lot of things that we were uh, doing elsewhere in terms of materials. The idea was to try and make fairly simple elevations out of uh, stone and glass. The roof was a, a, a wooden roof with lead on the outside. So the elevation was made up um, this actually is a, is a structural uh, beam, 
spanning from here, from this wall to this wall. Uh, and it's carrying its own self-weight of uh, the glass plots, also the weight of the roof, allowing an absolutely clear slot of glazing along this. This then is a sort of portal frame uh, which spans over one of the storage carousels which is described by the entrance courtyard. There are two large timber doors here, a little bench and stone wall. That shows the position of the building in relation to the existing house. We went through a number of um, permutations with the client in terms of whether he should knock down the existing house or what, it was a protracted uh, relationship with a rather difficult client. I know he's not here, so I can say it. Um, slightly more easier client was a shot we did for Izemiyaki and Sloan Street. Uh, we did this now two and a half years ago. I did this when I was working with Ken Armstrong. Sally Goose Lord also worked on the project. The Izumiyaki is a Japanese fashion company. They have a, um, a company at this end, Izumiyaki London. They had a shop already on this uh, location and uh, interviewed a number of designers to uh, redo the store. We were, it was a slightly protracted um, interview process where we had to sort of present an idea. Finally, they made up their mind and from the day we were told that we could proceed to the opening day, we had, about, we had eight weeks and two days to open it. This was really the first uh, commercial interior I had ever done. And I found it very difficult to know how to do a commercial interior. And it seemed to me that in a fashion shop, the, the, essential, thing one, the essential thing one should do is not be that fashionable to avoid uh, making the shop fashionable. The idea then became one of making as good a space as one could within the existing envelope. And by that, I wanted to make it as large as possible. The existing ceiling was quite low. Uh, we reorganized the services uh, in order to enlarge, the, in order to heighten the ceiling where we could. And that, in turn, became a sort of, turned into a sort of game of, of planes, of making the uh, interior into a sort of abstract composition using the ceiling, using each of the surfaces as a, as a sort of plane. Uh, this is obviously plaster and this is plaster. These planes are set out from each other by uh, 20 mil and 40 mil here. This is then another plane, which is wood. This is Portland stone, which runs along and goes up. In fact, I can go back. The shop has the sort of sense that it's been sort of cut through. Um, this is all stone here goes up to a skirting detail here. The other idea about this was to get rid of the paraphernalia of um, the fashion shop, the hanging rails and the, the um, bib bobs, and try and just make a very simple rail down one side of the shop, a very simple shelf underneath those clothes. It broke a lot of rules in that you're supposed to have, sorry, you're supposed to have clothes very close to the entrance. Um, you're not really meant to have steps in shops because it uh, puts customers off, etc., etc. But as we didn't know um, how to design shops, that was okay. Uh, there you can see a section through the shop. The original ceiling was here. In fact, it was, it was at one time the Iranian embassy, uh, the Iranian 
Iran Air uh, office. And we took three, ce- three full ceilings down. Uh, and one of them was sort of um, uh, Iranian uh, Arabic uh, domes. And I suddenly realized how shops are normally done, that people just build another shell inside of the shell that was there before. Uh, and we had great problems going all the way back to what the shop was, you know, the original space. The other um, precept that I had was that was to make the lighting not so visible. But obviously the, the lighting in a shop like this is very important, but I didn't want it to be full of fittings. And that coincided with this idea that ceilings and walls might become sort of planes. So this, this ceiling is sort of disengaged up here from that wall by the slot, and then light fittings go into this slot to light the clothes here. Similarly over here, there are light fittings along this edge. Let's just light that wall and then pick up each of the um, thicknesses of this new plastered wall. Uh, similarly, there's another shelf here where there are slightly more um, theatrical lights which can light the ceiling. I mean, you can see them here just lighting across the ceiling. Or they can uh, light down. The other preconception, apart from uh, the shops very close to the Joseph shops, um, which were all black and white. So I wanted to make a... Uh, and everyone was making shops at that time sort of black and white, and I wanted to get away from that. So apart from having slightly sort of negative preconceptions about not doing this or not doing that. Um, the other thing that seemed to me that was rather important uh, as a nervous shopper uh, was the fitting rooms. And what I particularly hate in most shops is going in and trying something on, uh, having a, a very strong light very close to you and another mirror very close to you. You're very hot and sweaty. Um, and the whole experience is... is very uncomfortable. Um, so I wanted the fitting rooms to be much softer. We did the fitting rooms without mirrors, which was apparently a very brave thing for the shop to do. Um, there are mirrors, of course, but not in, actually in the fitting room itself. And the idea was to contrast the um, inside and outside of the fitting rooms. So that the, idea, the, the inside the fitting room, which should be more like a the boudoir, much more soft, more decorative than the outside, more like a, a street, quite hard, and uh, using tough materials. This was a very beautiful table designed by, and made by John Harwood. This is a view inside the fitting rooms. In fact, it's a recent view, which has been, they've been changed quite a lot. There was a uh, sort of canvas seat and floor which came down here, which, and the, the walls were blue, which added to the, the, the different qualities of the inside and outside. Obviously, the other thing that was, was primary to the, to the whole thing was how one showed clothes. Again, something which uh, I really didn't know much about at that time. But it started from the, the precept that the clothes should just be hung in one straight line, should be lit from above. And secondly, that the wall behind the clothes should be lit, and the clothes should have some sort of silhouette. And that's something which uh, we took on. Um, Miyaki liked that shop and then asked me to go to Japan and do quite a few more, which we've been doing for the last two years. Uh, normally, often they're in department stores and, and the possibility to design is quite limited. In fact, probably more to the point, what's happened is that uh, Miyaki has started another range. It's called Permanente, and the idea is that it's a sort of classic uh, collection. 
Yeah, it's sort of outside of fashion. It's, thing, it's things which uh, you could wear after four or five years, it wouldn't really matter. Um, and that is they wanted me to use the sort of materials that we'd used in the Sloan Street shop as a sort of, nearly like a logo, I suppose. In that sense, it's been much more sort of corporate design than it has been architectural interior design. This is the last, we've been working there now for two years and done, we've done about ten shops, mostly, as I say, in, in uh, department stores, which completely harrowing experience. This was the last shop we've just finished. They're, they're very bad photos, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, this was opened a few weeks ago. The one thing that I was trying to say at the end of the Sloan Street shop fascinated me was that when you hang clothes, if you hang them just on a rail against a wall, their background is really uninteresting. And it always seemed to me not very sensuous that very beautiful and very expensive clothes were just hung against a sort of raw wall. And in this job, one of the things that we decided to do, or I decided to do, was to work with a Japanese sculptor. And I asked him to, to sculpt a wall behind the clothes. The wall is sort of freestanding, and you go behind this wall into the fitting room at one end and into the stock room at the other end. It doesn't go to the ceiling. The reason for doing this also is that Japanese shop interiors are, are made out of very thin materials, but they, they make them very well, so that when they use wood, it's always a veneer, but it sort of looks real because they, they detail it very well, but it never is. Um, so I wanted this, I wanted, and we did use very thick wood. Um, it's 40 mil thick. It's actually called Tomo, if anyone's interested in. Am I looking at the right? Yes, that's the freestanding wall there. And that's the fitting one behind. There's a sort of revolving door here which has a mirror on one side and plane on the other. This is the selling end. This is all in slate. This is in stone. Uh, then there's a marble strip along here and then there's a wooden wall. So the idea about the sculpting of the wall was as much as anything else to, to demonstrate the, um, the brutish quality of the wood, the fact that it, had, it could have some texture um, and that then the clothes also clothes against it. The clothes were against something which had a, had a grain, had a texture and had some yeah, brut- I mean, I, I use the word brutish because wood uh, in its, in its uh, sawn state has a, has a very um, strong character, which somehow, by the time it ends up in a frock shop, uh, is, uh, has lost all that. Um, this is an, another shop we did. This was in a department store. In fact, this was the first thing I did. This was a, a floor of a department store in... Tokyo and Cebu in Shibuya, and these were the fitting rooms. The idea was slightly similar to Sloan Street shop in that the fitting rooms became a sort of object in the middle of the space. Again, I worked with a Japanese um, sculptor who, who made these, there are four panels, and who surprised me at first by telling me he was going to make them using lust. I got terribly excited, only to realize he meant rust. The work for, for Miyaki has led to quite a few other uh, projects for us. Uh, I'm embarrassed to tell you, but this is a discotheque we're doing uh, in Rapongi, which is uh, downtown Tokyo. This building on the left, square building, which is a sort of famous Tokyo landmark, is a discotheque building. Every floor is a discotheque. And you can uh, take your pick from uh, the Philippine gay bar to high-tech romantic, whatever. The procedure for getting in the building is at the ground floor. 
there's a lift lobby. Well, there's not a lift lobby. There's, there are two lifts, which are these two here. And they go up on the outside of the building. And you literally, at ground floor, just come off the street and go into the lift and press you know, the floor of the disco of your choice. Um, and then you come out. We're completely bemused by this project because we've got no idea how to design a disco. I haven't been to one for years. So it's, it's been a good excuse to do some research while I'm in Japan. Like many buildings in Tokyo, the, the structure is completely without logic. Um, you can see here, there's a, there's a column there, there's a column here, there's a column here, there's a column here. Two there, they sort of pair up quite nicely. Um, then there's, they'll put a, a service duct wherever they sort of feel it's necessary, there's one there. Um, so that sort of wipes that corner out. Um, there's an escape stair here. The other requirement is that um, because of earthquakes, you have to have windows that the fire brigade can get in through. I don't know why they would want to get in after the earthquake. There's, there's one there and one there and one there. So there are all these sort of funny constraints. And uh, we've tried, and this is the latest, nearly the latest scheme uh, of, of what we're doing in terms of trying to rationalize the space. And I show it because it's, a, it, it's at its infancy, so there's not much I can show you. Although I, although I say it's at its infancy, it's going to be opened on March the 25th. And they start construction on January the 10th or something. In Japan, infancy means a few days away from being built. It, it's fairly symptomatic of the way that we have to respond to these sorts of projects in that uh, how the hell do you design a discotheque? Especially if you're trying to make some something out of it apart from just decorating the walls. What we try to do for most projects is, is to have a central idea, some way in, as it were. And in this case, what we decided was that, it seemed to us the problem with discotheques is that you have a, a certain amount of seat, sitting area, a certain amount of bar area, and then you have in the corner a sort of dance floor, and the dance floor is empty for half the night, and then everyone starts bopping as soon as they get a bit drunk. But what we decided here was to, uh, where you, you come in here, there's a lobby, and immediately you come into a, a very long linear space, which is four meters wide and about 35 meters long. And that's the lowest floor area. And then you step up one side or the other. And that is both a sort of street, but it's also the dance floor. So the idea was to make the dance floor into a sort of linear dance floor. Well, the Japanese thought this concept was wonderful. And uh, they, they've taken it hook, line, sinker. New concept for Japanese discotheque. No one's, no one's ever done a linear dance floor before. Um, the other idea about it was that then, having, having found that idea, that we then it, we used it. This is a soft area. We haven't drawn any furniture on here, but there's a series of, of sofas, long sofas that we're designing here. And this side is the hard area, the bar is here. We're doing this with Casino in Japan and with Bruce McLean. Bruce is going to, I hope, is going to paint uh, these walls. I'll show you some work later on that we've just done with Bruce and uh, give you some idea what we might do. But Bruce is going to work on a few of the walls and the bar. He doesn't know about the bar yet. The last project in Japan, which for us is obviously the most exciting and, and uh, has justified why I've been legging backwards and forwards for the last couple of years, uh, is a small private museum in Chiba, which is to the north of Tokyo, 
this is the site. It's sort of tucked in here. There's a little alley here. It's the most enchanting site, as you'll agree. Fairly awful suburban Tokyo. There's a private, that's a private house. There is an existing private house here, uh, and these are apartments. The client is an industrialist, runs some restaurants in Tokyo, and has a large private collection of uh, contemporary paintings, Western and Japanese, and wants to house them. In this area also there's a uh, university, and the program is for a private uh, museum for his collection, and for accommodation for nine rooms for uh, as a sort of hostel for the students. Sorry, I ought to explain the slide on the right. One of the things that is most noticeable and most disappointing also in contemporary Japanese architecture is their adoption of, of Western architecture, primarily because of the um, literalness of the, uh, of the Western buildings. But if you contrast that with the sort of spatial ambiguity that exists in traditional Japanese houses, admittedly the side on the right is a tea house in Katsura, so a tea house by definition is much more open to the outside than most houses, but traditional Japanese architecture <coughs> accommodates a sort of ambiguity between inside and outside. There's the slide looking in a build into a small building, and in some ways the most vivid part of the Photograph is the view out again. Um, you can see on the, on the left-hand side limited potential that we have in the architecture that we're used to, where you build a wall, inside is one side of the wall, outside is the other, and you, you whack a couple of holes and put an aluminium window in, and that's your connection between inside and outside. As there existed a uh, house, and unfortunately the slide doesn't really show the, the house on the site, already, uh, my first, the first idea came from, from that notion of uh, the relationship between inside and outside. And this was, these are literally the, the um, first presentation sketches to the client. There is an existing house, it sits within a garden. That house then has, and you, you enter at this end, uh, that house is then looking out onto the street and onto its neighbors. Uh, it has a front door and it has a number of small windows. Given uh, both what I felt was the, the richness of historical Japanese architecture, and one, one doesn't want to be sort of gooey about it and start putting uh, uh, rice paper screens all over the place and that sort of stuff, but uh, I think certain ideas like that can be translated in modern idiom, and Ando uh, Tadao is probably the most interesting of the architects in Japan for exactly that reason. The other reason why the sort of courtyard house works, and this is obviously what I'm leading up to, uh, is, the, is the nature of the light in Japan. They have most, even this time of the year, uh, most phenomenal uh, bright days, most, casting the most beautiful shadows into courtyards. And obviously Ando's work benefits from that. This was the translation I wanted to make. Given this notion of, in, of using courtyards and, and fuzzing the edge between inside and outside, as well as the fact that the program had two components, private museum and, uh, and residence, I, I persuaded the client to look at a format 
at this point fairly naively, uh, a format where the building might be more internal and use a number of different types of spaces. On the left is another image from Katsura. Um, the slide on the right is probably not the right one to start off with. This is the uh, scheme as it's been. Um, in fact, we're just revising it now. I'll probably go to another slide to try and explain it. The slide on the left was also part of the, 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 fairly, the, the first sketches. Try to look at how we might make some sort of street as a circulation for the rooms. There are eight rooms which we planned along the eastern side of the building. The rooms are on two different two levels. So you, you enter off the street and go up into into this sort of internal cloister, and from that you can circulate. You can go into five five rooms on the on this floor, or go up a staircase and into four rooms up here. The museum. To enter the museum, you were, in this scheme, you were going to go down the staircase and the museum occupied the ground, the, the ground and basement areas. And on the right-hand side, there were a number of courtyards. That shows it in a bit more detail. So from the street, there's a garage here, a staircase up for the students, either entering here or there's another set of rooms on this level. This is a sort of formed space, although it's not protected. Uh, you go downstairs again into a small courtyard which has a building over part of it and is open in other parts through to, an, through to the entrance of the, of the museum. Beyond that is another small courtyard. Here you can see the organization of the accommodation. There's a rooms at this level and rooms at this level. The sort of student street is here. The cloister is here. Um, the way up to the second level is here. And you enter those rooms here. Again, the, then this side of the, the building has been cut to allow courtyards and spaces to, to penetrate down into the museum. You can sort of see that here. There's a courtyard sunk here, there's an entrance courtyard here. So there are a number of different spaces of very different uh, characteristics. As well as looking at the form of the building, we tried, we've been working on the, uh, the rooms themselves, which are reduced in Absolute minimum. It's uh, 18, 18 to 20 square meters per room, including a bathroom. The idea is that, well, there, there are two, there are two notions. First of all, that because there is a, a street, as it were, there's an access passage outside of each room. This is the, this is the entrance <coughs> side of the room. That we, we're looking at ways of making privacy, but still allowing light to come in through that elevation. So we're trying to develop a sort of contemporary Japanese screen, uh, which can allow different, differing amounts of light and privacy. The light from the other side of the building comes in in a more obscure way through, again, we've played around with soffits to hide lighting uh, and to obscure natural light. So natural light will diffuse and come down this wall and also come here. This is a platform, a bed platform, which you'll put out a sort of sleeping mat. In, in the morning, you'll roll that away, and then you can use this as a bench, and that as a bench, or that as a shelf. Terribly Japanese. That project is, uh, we're now moving into working drawings, and we signed a contract last week, and we'll be on site in April next year for a completion uh, one year later. Closer to home, we've been doing a number of other 
shop interiors. And this was the, something that came quite soon after doing the Aki. I was asked to go to Paris and work for <coughs> a shirt company, quite successful shirt company who never sold shirts in shops before. They, did, I mean, they, they never had their own shop. They always sold through department stores or, um, in fact, through Joseph here. Most of Joseph shirts are made by this particular company. The site was on a quite difficult corner just off Place Victoire, and it was a cafe, and we had to make a new shirt shop just in, the, in this sort of corner here. The existing uh, geometry of the space was this. You can see the sort of outside angular edge here. This window looks up to Place Victoire. This is a sort of small back street. And I wanted to make a sort of, uh, it's a tiny, tiny shop. You can see that's six meters, and that's um, about three and a half. There's no room for uh, any window or any display, so the idea was that we would put in a, uh, a shelving unit, which would become visible from the street. It was both the thing that you bought from, but also the thing that was visible. And I immediately wanted to set up a sort of back of the shop, a sort of edge, a back edge of the shop and also to make some logic out of this difficult angular geometry. So I, I sort of formed this as the back of the shop, and we put in a sort of curved wall here. This is a false wall here, which you'll see, you can see here, which doesn't go to the ceiling, and has the shelving units on, the shelves on front, and then the cabins, the fitting rooms, are behind that, so you just sort of slip behind in both cases. Um, in such a small shop, there was a necessity to sort of articulate the space in some way, uh, both through materials and volume. And we did that by forming us all the, the edges of the building are in stone and are higher. But in the center, there's a sort of wooden platform. The shelves also are part of that sort of wooden platform. In fact, this whole central piece was made in London and then was taken to Paris and sort of slotted into, uh, again, this was made by John Harwood was slotted into a sort of stone frame. Uh, this was the first elevation we ever did, and actually, I think it's the only elevation we've ever done, which we were very proud of. We had to block up a window and make it. This is the entrance. You can see here that the edges uh, are, are made in, this, in a sort of slightly sculptural way with the stone. This is the curved wall. The other game we played was to reflect the, the, the geometry of the floor and the volume of the space by uh, quite complicated ceiling profiles, dropping ceilings, um, and using and hiding air conditioning ducts, again hiding the lights behind. It's something that perhaps we've, uh, we adopt in all our projects, is to use the ceiling as, as one of the surfaces of the room and to articulate the ceiling as much as possible. Uh, there's a cantilevered steel bench on this, on this wall. That's the wooden sycamore platform. These are the shelves the fitting ones behind. Uh, in this case, the client wanted um, the shirts to be folded and displayed in a sort of pancake-like way. So we needed a lot of length of shelves, and then we need, needed stock below them. So that's a detail of the, the top of the sycamore wall, the double aluminium shelf, um, which actually, when you're in the fitting room, you can see through. Uh, and then there's a set there, this is the separator of the two fitting rooms. And which is back on this line, and then an obscure glass panel, aluminium. That's 
within the fitting room. The aluminium shelves, sort of razor blade-like, go through the wooden wall and then are pegged at the back with rubber bungs. Then there's a, there's a sort of piece that separates the two fitting rooms, which is made out of um, steel, glass, and a, a wooden bench. The, the, again, the, this wall was done with John Harwood. I, I think it's a little bit fussy, but very nicely made. Um, this is the little detail of the, this seat. Um, there's a sandblasted glass panel, and then there's a mirror put within that panel. Well, it's, it's actually the same piece of glass, partly mirrored and partly sandblasted. We've always been involved, and this was something I, uh, it's a small project I started with Roger Huntley, uh, who I was in partnership with quite a few years ago. This was a, a drawing board we did at the time. And the idea was that it was a, uh, this came out of the frustration of not having something for ourselves that we could use. The idea was that it was essentially a table at its sort of rest position, which is this. It's a, te- it's a table that you could use in any sort of way. It's a gate leg, so it could fold down, and you can put it away. It also has a rack system, so you can adjust very simply without any complicated mechanism the angle of the board. This sat around for a long time, and finally a, a sort of version of it is going to get made in Japan. Those sorts of projects... Um, well, that sort of project has kept us also involved with furniture-type projects. Uh, this, is, this is another one. Um, th- this was a commission for Estee Lauder, who are a perfume company, as you probably know. And in all those um, ground floor in- entrances of awful department stores, there are hundreds of these sort of stands where uh, girls try and sell other girls tons and tons of makeup. Um, Estee Lauder asked me whether I would do some sketches to redesign their perfume stands. And I said, well, the problem with doing sketches is that you, you can't actually develop an idea through sketches. All that will happen is we'll do some you know, artist impressions um, and it will sit in front of some board and they'll decide whether they like look of it or not. But it seemed to me that one of the problems with retail design of this sort is that the objects are not interesting at all in their material, the way that they're made. Uh, they're made as components which can be stacked together. Um, I always imagine that the reason that they looked like they did was because they would have a sort of warehouse full of these things somewhere and that when they were going to do, re, you know, do another shop at Selfridges, they could just bring them in. But apparently each piece is handmade and made specifically for the shop. So I said, well, I would be interested if they would make a prototype, because only if we made a prototype um, could you actually, I felt, progress the design of these things. If you can actually start saying, well, this is wood and this is glass. And this is, um, and they accepted that, and, and uh, we went ahead and built, built a prototype, which was completed uh, about four weeks ago, and put into Phoenix, I dread to, to add, um, very Christmassy. It looks pretty awful here, I think, it's a hundred times better than what was there. And has been quite a shock for them. Uh, I think it's gone down quite well. The materials we used were, um, this is a very dark wood called Wenge. Um, and uh, then the, the top surface is, this is glass and sandblasted glass fins. They've packed this stand. This is uh, the... the Estee Lauder are having a sort of fight with Phoenix at the moment about how they should dress the stand and, the, and my staff are there this morning to uh, educate 
these people how they should use it. Um, the interesting thing about this, I mean, we don't usually get involved in this sort of thing, but it's quite interesting now and again. Um, and it, what, I, what I also find interesting about it is that it sort of consolidates the position of the amateur. We know nothing about uh, displaying perfume or, you know, these sorts of retail problems. Um, you know, really you should go to Fitch or you should go to David Davis or McColls or whatever. I mean, they get, those guys know about it. <coughs> but there seems to be a situation now that expertise is sort of um, seen with a certain amount of cynicism and that in the end, <coughs> the essential process isn't that complicated. You've got a bunch of boxes. You've got to show the product in a certain way. You've got to have a certain amount of storage and the thing has to look, you know, it has to have some sort of image. Um, and there's much, there seems to be much more patience now uh, with this sort of client as to how the thing might look and how the thing might be made and that customers might actually appreciate that, which I sort of find quite reassuring. Uh, and as I say, it's, it's quite enjoyable that after sort of two or three meetings, um, you can hold an opinion about the way that things could be done, uh, which is, is just as valid as, as anybody that's supposedly expert in it. This was a project we finished about uh, nine months ago, and I'm sure the clients who are here would argue that we should have finished it a few more months before that. It was for a group of graphic designers, Carol Dempsey and Thurkle. They bought, I have to be very careful what I say in this because I know they're here. They bought a small warehouse in, uh, off of Grayson Road, two stories, and wanted to occupy the upstairs as their themselves as a studio and to sublet downstairs. The building uh, has had a number of uses. Uh, in the very middle of it, there is a there are some brick vaults uh, and ovens that something to do with the pottery. I'll show you on the plan a bit later. Um, the building itself, and you can see you can just about see the roof up there. Uh, it's not one of those. Um, beautifully pristine, 19th century engineered industrial buildings. It's really had a sort of hammering. It's been knocked around and no one's really looked after it. Um, the budget was such that we couldn't put all those things straight. Uh, so our attitude was one of, um, as it were, patching the shell and whiting it out and making it a sort of neutral backdrop in which to put slightly more manicured pieces. <coughs> and those pieces obviously are uh, were the entrance, the reception, uh, and of course the toilets. Um, the original entrance for the building was always at this end, uh, but the first floor was a series of, I mean, there was a, uh, a couple of double doors and a, and a winch that you could pull things in, um, and these were a couple of garage doors. There was no entrance, obviously, to the upper floor um, from this end. What we did was to make a, a double volume, this end of the building, which allows uh, them to come into their building at the ground floor here and go up past this uh, wooden screen up into their reception area. Slightly arty drawing on the left. Um, sort of shows the relationship between the screen, the reception area, and the reception desk. There was a fairly sort of obvious type solution to this, which would have been cutting a big double hole, double height hole at, at this end, and putting a, 
sort of high techy staircase in, it seemed to me that uh, there was something more enjoyable about entering up into the space behind something. And in fact, that screen uh, at the upper level, as you'll see, sort of forms the end of the space. So there's a sort of preconception about not making the stair the object, uh, but making those things that bounded it the object. Structurally, what happened is that we cut the floor, we cut the floor in this sort of irregular shape and put a steel trimmer to the floor here, which is this steel trimmer here. So that that's the uh, new edge of the upper floor. So we, we just cut all the joists along here and collected them in this trimmer beam. Um, the other idea was in this uh, attitude to the building was that was having, having kept the well, it's an idea I've already suggested, but having kept the sort of um, the background and whited it and made it um, sort of acceptable and neutral, we would then put in insert certain things which. Uh, I refer to them as being in a different focus. So that you would notice those things, and it was the parts of the buildings that you would touch or come into contact in some way. Having put this wooden screen, or having designed this wooden screen, I felt that it was, there was something uh, lopsided about it. Secondly, if we put a metal handrail on this edge, there was going to be a, uh, a technical detail, how, how do we fit to a very ropey uh, brick wall? Um, so what we did was to put another sort of plane to dress this, this side of the staircase with another uh, object and to cut into that plane a, a steel channel and then to set into that steel channel uh, uh, a carved marble handrail. This trimmer runs round and becomes the final, the final tread. This is the, uh, the plan as it was before. Um, some cubicles over here. This is the old oven space, <coughs> which was uh, unusable. Just was, there was some storage in it, I think. The floor level is di was different on this from that to the rest of the space. These were the old loading doors. Uh, that was a staircase down. This was a small building, which I think had at some time had been added to the, to the rest of the building. Um, you can see here, what this is the space we cut. That's the, the new edge channel. The screen runs here. You come up here. The final tread is there. The reception sitting area is here. Reception desk is there. The d design studio is in here. And I felt that the way that designers work is, is messy. It is chaotic. And I don't think it's fair to suggest that they should work in any other way. So what we did, rather like sort of bookends, we built two screens, one here and one here, to sort of contain this uh, creative activity. We then, and we weren't sure about this until we were well into the project, uh, previously we planned the toilets over here, but we thought that, depending on site investigations, we thought we might be able to plan the toilets into this block, which seemed to be the most useful way of using them. That's the reception desk. This is a storage wall that we built down one side, just out of plasterboard and steel shelves. That's looking back to the reception. That, uh, that zone, is the sort of vestigial uh, sliver here, is decked in uh, sycamore with uh, small grooves between each board. Uh, on this piece, where most traffic goes, there's small brass strips between those grooves. 
just to protect that floor. This is stainless steel and then this is grey uh, rubber. Finally, we could fit the toilets in. Uh, you can just see this, uh, the vault up here with some tie bars. We had to move the tie bars. We, make, we designed rather like railway carriages and you, you come up a stainless, folded stainless steel stair here and go into two cubicles, well there's, there's sort of wash, wash room, uh, I can probably explain, or well, you can see here a bit more. You go up here, there's a cubicle here with two wash basins and then the toilets are in boxes here and then the other one is up here. So they're like little railway compartments, you can see here. <coughs> this whole insertion is made out of steel, painted steel, and then obscure glass panels, except for this, which I sort of termed as a facade, which is made out of marble. Um, I think this sort of highlights quite well the, the concern we had for how do you, do you marry and at, at what junction <coughs> do you make the, the sort of new bit and the old bit. At some point you have to form some line and, and make some sort of sculptural uh, edge. So in this case you can obviously see that we've sort of plastered some of the edges down here and formed an edge here, but this obviously we've kept in its original state. Um, this is looking into one of the cubicles. Um, we, we wanted a small cantilevered stainless steel basin and we couldn't find one anywhere. And finally I went to Divertimenti, a kitchen shop, and bought a salad bowl uh, for £7.50. And we had our metal worker, in fact it failed the first time, uh, turn it and set in a, the, the waste in the bottom. Um, we then took a, a, a normal armoured shanks uh, tap and uh, they used to make them in, in metal but now they've, they've gone over to plastic. So we, smashed the handle to bits and made a little capstan handle. There was a, I mean, we tend, we tend to use these jobs in this way to just investigate those things and play with those things which on other jobs you, you probably wouldn't. I'm sure the clients wish we hadn't. This is, uh, well you can see this is for the AJ. A um, uh, little stand that we did for Interville the other week. I put this in because it seemed to me uh, indicative that <clears throat> we've got to a position now where we, we tend to respond to each uh, project in what we term, what we see to be the best way for the, for the, for the problem. In other words, <clears throat> I think at the beginning of one's career, I think I would have tried to do something quite clever or gymnastic uh, on, a, on a project like this. Um, and that because one has done a number of exhibition stands, it seemed to me that the one thing you can't do an exhibition is to, to do anything too complicated. <clears throat> what you really need to do is something very simple, very clean and very bold. What we did, the, the escalator was here. We put a curved wall here, which is this one, which took the AJ graphics. We built a sort of box here around the sort of drinking area. Uh, and then we exhibited the, the magazine in a rather sort of precious way. Uh, there's, there's something quite, di and it's quite difficult to know how to how to exhibit a magazine, which uh, people are buying all the time. In the end, what we did was to, uh, and we went through this ourselves, Michael Greville from our office went through back copies of the AJ, and we selected a, a double-page spread from each, uh, showing each part of the magazine. 
and set that under glass in a rather sort of precious way. And then put uh, covers from the last year onto the wall. This is another project just finished. Uh, after the, the shop in, uh, in uh, Place de Victoire, we were asked to do <coughs> another shop for the same shirt company in a shopping center uh, outside of Paris. Uh, slightly larger space, but to keep, keep the same sort of um, aesthetic. Again, it's, it's sort of this work gets slightly into the realm of uh, corporate design um, more than architecture, although there's obviously sort of architectural potential, although spatial potentials. The idea in this case, this was the existing uh, space. This, this became stock, stock area. <clears throat> we pursued the same idea of there being a sort of wooden floor raft, the shelves along this edge. There's a bench here, uh, a screen, marble screen here in the two sitting rooms, and a desk here. So this bench is this one here. This is in metal, uh, sorry, this is in plaster, and then this piece is in uh, sandblasted glass. So it changes from one material to the other, but in a very similar color. The shelves in this case are much more simple. It's set in, there's a, an angle set into the wood wall, and then there are some a st five mil steel plate and some flanges, and then the drawers in aluminum here. So that's the, the screen, that's the desk, and that's the um, that's the red curtain for the um, fitting room, or one of the fitting rooms. We found ourselves over the last year working in most strange circumstances. Uh, one day for Estee Lauder, fiddling around with packets of perfume, at other times working with uh, offices such as SOM, working on master planning uh, projects. Uh, we've worked with them on this project, King's uh, Paternoster Square, <coughs> and over the last four or five months we've been working on King's Cross, which Peter referred to earlier, and is being submitted next week. Um, <coughs> I wasn't completely happy with the final solution, but I do think the strategy, which um, certainly we were involved in, was the right one. Uh, the cathedral at the moment is, is surrounded by a, a series of buildings which are uh, organized around precincts. Um, there is no way for uh, cars or traffic to get into that uh, block. It's a sort of super block. And our primary idea was a really quite simple one, was to say, let's make some streets. Uh, this was a diagram I did early on. <coughs> it's completely uh, unintelligible, but that's the cathedral. The idea was to make a, an east-west street and a number of north-south streets. We sort of did that, although I, personally and, and um, uh, I, I felt that it was the, the character in which it was done was wrong. Uh, it got too complicated, but uh, this street was to run through, uh, those two streets to run through, and these were going to be traffic streets. And at the junctions of some of these things, there would be squares. And this square would be serving uh, the office development, and this would be serving commercial development. The other idea was to form a very simple edge to the cathedral on this side. Finally, uh, we have some buildings to do next year.
and this is one of them. I promised the client that I'd, I'd refer to them as enlightened clients tonight. So I, I will refer to them as enlightened clients. Um, property develop. This is for uh, firm property developers. There are three studios. Two double height, one here, one here, and then a single height building here. It's a landlocked site. This is the back wall of one set of houses. That's the back wall of another set, and that's the back wall of another set. There's a small lane that comes in here. Um, our idea, we originally looked at the site and looked at building some used houses or something like that. Finally, we decided that what we should do is just build the biggest space we could, sort of loft-like spaces. And finally, we got planning permission to build uh, three uh, residential workshop artist studio units. The heights of the buildings are obviously governed by light angles and proximity to gardens. And so that's why we've had to limit this end of the buildings to be single story. The facade of this, or these two buildings, uh, is generated partly by the uh, double height uh, space behind the elevation. And secondly, by uh, the way of entrance. That they're behind the gridded frame. This is a steel frame which will support the roof. Um, there is a glass facade, which will be seamless glass, uh, saving for a, a track, which will, off of which will be hang large industrial glass doors. Um, so you can open these spaces up if you want to get large objects in. But in order to avoid there being small doors within that glass facade, uh, the, this ele these elevations are raked, which allows you to slip in here and come in through a small door here and here. Um, that's the site. You can see it's completely hemmed in, save for this little entrance here. The roof lighting works. There's a staircase. Oh, there are two staircases here, and then a central spine party wall, which will be roof lit, and then there is roof lighting along the back wall. That is just, we're just going through working drawings on this, and we'll start early next year. Um, finally, just like to show uh, one remaining project, which is something we finished uh, a week ago, which was the remodeling of the Arnolfini Gallery in Bristol. The Arnolfini is a, um, an institution somewhat modeled on the ICA. Uh, it contained and can still contains a number of galleries, bookshop, a uh, performance space, uh, which is also used as a theatre and cinema. Uh, it also has, or had, and still has a, uh, a bar restaurant. The plan on the right was as was. Uh, the building itself was an industrial building in the 19th century, gutted in the 60s, and uh, office building was put above it. You can see through the sensitive placing of columns um, that the structure uh, was put in with inside the uh, existing uh, stone walls having abs bearing absolutely no relationship whatsoever to the existing windows. Um, the Arnolfini uh, space originally you entered here there was a little jog here to get past this column. Uh, you came into a central space there was a reception, bookshop here bar restaurant at this end 
staircase up and a little lobby to go into. This gallery, that's the theatre. There's another gallery upstairs. <coughs> um, the, there were a few ideas about the, the remodeling, uh, and we worked very close with Barry Barker, the director, uh, the new director, because the remodeling was seen as a, uh, an, an initiative to um, move the gallery into a slightly different uh, direction that had been in its form for 15 or 20 years. Everyone had become rather comfortable with it. It was a bit sloppy. Uh, the bar restaurant particularly was absolutely awful. Um, it was a cross between a sort of railway waiting room and a and, uh, works canteen. Um, the entrance into the, to the building was um, very confusing. So there was an idea, first of all, to change the image of the, um, uh, this institution, <coughs> which was still rather sort of brown rice and um, open-toe sandals, to uh, update that, but obviously not just in terms of uh, surface treatment, but also in terms of planning. Uh, again, it was one of these uh, <coughs> jobs with a massive budget. Um, the budget was, was uh, I was being sarcastic, the budget was uh, uh, very small. We couldn't do anything too major. We had to work around staircases. Um, we had to, in fact, we didn't, we, we, in this case, we couldn't do anything with the toilets. We couldn't do anything very structural. <coughs> the, the main moves were one of moving the, the bookshop from down here upstairs. We simply redecorated the gallery spaces here and upstairs. We remodeled the staircase in its existing position and we formed a much clearer central hall which got you into the new galleries or upstairs or down into the new bar restaurant. In order to get there from the outside, we put in this little piece here uh, which allowed you to come in and enter via reception desk area, uh, then into this sort of main. That's the new, new entrance. Um, this is the curved screen. Uh, again, we resorted to the, uh, a few standard tricks of using certain material slate, um, using lighting a certain way. Um, and using ceilings a lot. Here you can see the sort of layering of the, of the, the composition of the building. This is the staircase. Previously the staircase had a sort of concrete uh, baluster and a, and a very heavy um, handrail that was very popular with architects of the 60s. Um, this was a sketch for... This is the column that caused this, and obviously the previous architects, a lot of problems how to, to get through this grand opening and cope with this column, <coughs> which was absolutely sort of well, bore no relationship to the entrance whatsoever. So this curve somewhat sort of describes around that column. You can see there. This is the the end of the curve is finished with a steel plate and the whole thing sits on a slate platform. And then this is sort of fairly minimal detailed glass 
here. So there are two glass doors from the lobby. You can just see here that uh, the stair disappearing off. The area where you first come in is wood. Uh, they're 10-inch elm boards. Another one of them. The way in. So you come in here. That's a reception area. This is in wood. This floor is in stone. And this is the main uh, circulation to um, the restaurant. There's the staircase. We also demolished around this corner so that you can get oblique views into the gallery and from the gallery out. Before, the gallery was very uh, hidden. There's also a little window so that you can see when you're in, the, in this space, you can see back out to the docks. Uh, that's the new wall to the staircase. This is the uh, handle we designed. Um, stainless steel, and this is a turned piece of uh, ash. Um, from the other side, uh, the curved the curve object becomes an object from the other side um, <coughs> and houses the bench. Um, I wanted to get rid of uh, a reception area per se where there are a few plastic seats around uh, and to build um, benches into this main uh, street-like space. You can see also starts of bits and pieces going on in the ceiling. That's looking at the back to, there's the window going through. This is the staircase wall, slate reception desk. Um, this is the elm floor. That's Portland stone. That's slate, sycamore. Um, the desk is, is uh, um, a sprayed lacquer in a sort of green with a glass top, uh, which was a sort of counterpoint with all these natural materials. I just felt that there was something very nice about using, that, that not everything had to be a natural material. Um, the red carpet shocked a lot of people. Uh, we wanted to make the, car the, the stair um, inviting and soft and a sense that you would want to go upstairs. Previously, there was a sort of foreboding about the staircase. It's a very long stair. Uh, it was very uninviting. Um, and again, it was slightly to do with this idea that <coughs> uh, I was getting worried that everything being in natural materials was all a bit po-faced and a bit serious. Uh, but there was something a bit more humorous about using a cheap red plastic, uh, a cheap red carpet. We've used a similar handrail detail, modified slightly. We've modified the section as the previous project. Um, this is looking back through. Previously, there was, as I say, there was a sort of half-wall banister here, which we cut and played around with and made into a sort of composition by using uh, studwork wall, a metal plate, a glass panel which is half sandblast and half clear. You can see that's that's a sandblasted glass panel. So there's a sort of um, a game of, of uh, planes on different levels uh, and of different materials and different translucency. And the plinth is then in, in white um, mob. At the end of that, uh, just go back one, at the end of that space there, 
uh, is the bar restaurant. And we worked with this, worked on this with Bruce McLean, um, which was great fun. This is the template we did one evening uh, under the influence. And I can't remember which is the, the final line was this one out here. Goes here. No, sorry, it's, it has a straight that's in it. Um, that was the full scale template, which was uh, Bruce then took off uh, and made a terrazzo top. And I think there are some slides later on which will show that. <coughs> the idea of the, the bar was that we would continue the, uh, the general sort of calm of the, uh, the gallery spaces um, into the restaurant. And we would then, could you focus the one on the left a little bit? <coughs> that Bruce's bar in the middle uh, would have a slightly sort of hairy quality and much more sort of frenetic, and would play off, uh, which I think they do, they would play off each other. Um, we put in, you can, this is sort of looking from, obviously looking from the gallery area, the floor is a black industrial floor, uh, uh, and Bruce painted some bib bobs on it. This is the terrazzo top, and is supported by this metalwork framing, and a and 12 mil plate sheets from one end to the other. It's another view of the under bar supports. This is a piece of stone that <coughs> we got in finally by um, taking this window out and putting a crane through the window. Behind the bar there's a, a glass screen off of which is cantilevered the shelves and also another terrazzo top. Um, and again Bruce has <coughs> drawn on those surfaces. Um, the, the idea for the <coughs> For the seating area, previously there'd been a number of formica top tables and plastic shell chairs, and it looked like a normal canteen. And we decided that um, uh, the atmosphere of this place should be more like a, uh, a German beer cellar or something like that, something much more ro robust. Um, and in fact, again, the, the interesting aspect of this particular part of the project, um, although it was true, and, and it tends to be true on most of the things we do, that the original um, debate, the description, and the persuasion of the client in this case uh, to, as to what the thing should be, not just what it looks like, but uh, how it functions and what food it should serve even. Uh, we sort of bullied the, them into not to, to reducing their menu of just doing a few things that primarily be a sort of continental bar that serves wine and beer and very good coffee and you could get sandwiches or soup or salad or a very limited um, menu. And in some ways, I think that was uh, probably uh, more of an achievement than, 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 than what followed. Uh, again, this sort of idea of floating ceilings. Downlighters are put in living slots, so they're not so visible. You can just see Bruce's terrazzo top and some smiling faces. Uh, these are the beer, these are the famous beer pumps. We decided that if we were going to make this very beautiful top, the last thing we wanted to do was to clamp onto, onto the top the normal, um, brewer's, uh, ironmongery, uh, 
with coaching, with uh, horse horse riding scenes and porcelain knickknacks and brass bits. So we thought, we wondered whether we couldn't design a, a beer pump, uh, and certainly then we would fix it to the lower bar, not to the to the upper bar. All we did was to to take a standard uh, beer pump, just take everything off that could be removed uh, that wasn't functional, of which there was a large amount, bolted it to, and again we did the same with all the soda siphon things, bolted that to a piece of framework and designed new stainless steel and ash handle. Each, the ends of each of the tables has a Bruce face. This screen, uh, th- this door goes straight out onto the wharf and in the winter, there's a huge draft, so we put a gla- another glass screen in here. You can just see the kitchen behind here, and it goes behind the glass screen. The kitchen is, is very open to the to the restaurant. In fact, you can sort of stand behind the bar a bit and see what's going on. You can just see the, the support at the back of the bar for the other terrazzo shelf. Um, there was quite an amusing scene towards the end of the job where Andrew Bryce from our office, who was sort of supervising the um, installation of the restaurant came back terribly worried that the bar was looking terribly crude and it sort of threw our office into a slight panic how to detail something which was sort of hairy how to supervise something which um, by its nature should be um, and for the whole reason it was there should be not polished and in fact if you look behind the, the bar it's, it's sort of a dog's dinner there are pipes all over the place and, uh, and it was quite interesting that 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 sort of presented a problem to us, how to supervise and what were the rules of it. Uh, is there anyone who would like to uh, ask a question of those who are staying? Yes. Are you always glad that the program is short because it forces you to solve problems with the materials you've got to hand and with the people that you can work with? Or would you be a lot happier if the, if the programs on a lot of these shops had been longer and you could have uh, worked up the details and the, and the effects you were, you were looking for? Usually, I think you'd be much happier if we had more time. It's true that sometimes you tend to wait to make decisions till the last minute anyway. I think in terms of decision-making, there's a lot of advantage about the program being very fast. But in terms of doing anything particular, often you're denied that opportunity by the fact the program's not long enough. If things are on six- to eight-week delivery and the job is on site in three weeks, it just puts certain things out of your control. And often you can't also experiment. Uh, I'd just uh, like to ask one question if nobody else does. You, you, you said you weren't too concerned about detailing or didn't see that central to your work. It seemed to me that um, the sort of detailing you do does require enormous attention to detail and also I mean, the cool approach does require fantastic workmanship too. Um, well, I didn't mean to say it wasn't important but that, that it wasn't the starting point, it wasn't central. I don't think you can do things just by good detailing or just by what's supposed to be good detailing, um, just by using interesting materials. But you can only make a decision about how something should go together in the first place as to what you want it to achieve. So what I was trying to say is that it's very easy now to sort of characterize certain things as being concerned with how you put things together or how you what materials you use. But you have no reason to put things together unless you have some primary idea to start with. Now, often that's slightly um, informed by the fact that you want to use materials in a certain way or that, you know, that there's a certain sensitivity to materials. And so you'll, 
will think about forms from the from the start, and perhaps with some preconception about that. But but it's not. I was trying to suggest that it wasn't something within itself. It was a sort of means. Architectural ideas had to be a bit more substantial than just pretty vignettes. Of the job now of, of, of thanking David very much for a fascinating presentation and uh, what is seems a large body of work for a relatively short time in practice. And we look forward to the future of this young architect enormously. Thank you very much.